Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. We're going to look at the original prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 to 13, and we'll see if we can figure out a bit of what Zechariah is saying. So out of the four Gospels, there are two accounts of Jesus entering Jerusalem, identifying it as the fulfillment of a prophecy by Zechariah in the Old Testament. Now, just to give a bit of context, Zechariah was a prophet, which if you're not sure, is someone who hears from God directly, um, and they're able to communicate it. There's so many ways to be prophetic, Uh, I reckon we'll probably need a whole series uh, on preaching, so hopefully you'll get the gist today. Uh, We actually believe as a church that hearing from God or being able to prophesy is a spiritual gift that we're all able to access and develop today. I know a few people currently in Fallowfield and other sites of Christchurch Manchester are able to do this well, and most of those people, funnily enough, including myself, Some seem to be people who struggle to speak publicly. (laughs) They might be a little bit socially awkward or just have massive insecurities about speaking out. Apparently, though, just a side note, Moses had a stutter or some kind of speech impediment, uh, which I find amazing. (laughs) Not that he had a stutter, but (laughs) just the fact that his whole story is based on hearing from God, commanding waves and waters to separate, you know, Singing with his brother, if you've seen The Prince of Egypt, it's literally my favourite scene. I just watched the film with Christian Bale in it. I was a bit disappointed there was no singing in it. But anyway, let's get to it. So, can you remember a time when you were a bit socially awkward? Maybe a situation where you could have used your skills or your voice to speak something out, but you just couldn't go through with it. Can you also remember a time when you had that same exact feeling, but you actually had the confidence to do it? There was probably a real sense of freedom when you let it out, or sang that song, or spoke to that person, or those people. And sometimes people can transform how we feel about ourselves too. We can easily believe what others tell us, but they're not always the truth. The lie can stitch and it can sow and grow and grow and there can be nothing anyone else who is actually speaking truths can say to help you believe it. It's amazing as well how we can miss great opportunities because of what other people say to us. And it might not even be that bad. So we've been reading through the book of Zechariah in Fallowfield recently. I don't personally get the impression that Zechariah is that insecure, but Zechariah was ministering to the Jewish people of this time, supporting their task of rebuilding the temple of Zerubbabel, which is a fantastic word to say in my accent. (laughs) Zerubbabel, just wanted to say it again, so. Um, And if you want to know more about that, please feel free, Uh, Stuart McGregor did a fantastic preach last week, so that's on the sermon podcast now. We'll also have a look today at some comparisons in the Gospels in the New Testament and hopefully gain a bit of understanding. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9 and we'll be reading from verses 9 to 13. 
So it starts, the coming king of Zion, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of the covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim as his arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So uh, if you've got your Bibles, please feel free to keep them open because <laughs> uh, there's quite a lot in there. Anyway, who is this daughter of Zion? So in the book of Hebrews, right, chapter 12, Zion is identified as symbolic of the church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 6, Peter talks about the church being an assemblage, another great word, of living stones. But then Peter quotes Isaiah 28, verse 16, where it talks about Zion, a cornerstone, a sure foundation. We also heard a bit about that last week as well. But when we come across the word Zion in the Old Testament, it might be talking symbolically or prophetically about the church. Now, the donkey, I think the donkey plays a role of peace here, not war. If you don't know already, I grew up just a stone's throw away from a relatively small city in central Scotland called Stirling. And growing up just by being outside or literally looking out of a window, I would constantly be reminded of the battles between Scotland and England around the 1300s. I would see quite a few landmarks that would remind me of this time period. You've got Stirling Castle, which is quite pretty. But there's also the Wallace Monument, which pays homage to our great Scottish hero, William Wallace. And then you've got the famous grounds of where the Battle of Bannockburn took place. And of course, the Stirling Bridge, where a great battle between Scotland and England also occurred. You lost, sorry. Um, basically, there were a lot of battles between Scotland and England in Stirling. But I really love the history, though. And like most Scottish people, I'm quite passionate about my nation, our traditions, our banter, pizza crunches, which are deep-fried pizzas. But all of this didn't come without some generational unforgiveness that I had to cut off. I found that really hard, especially because it became so normal to see those landmarks every day. I wouldn't even think about it anymore. My brain was so conditioned to it. So therefore, I carried that unforgiveness that came from the generations before me so naturally towards the English. I love those landmarks. I love our history. But I don't want to be a part of unforgiveness. So I can imagine quite clearly, probably because of where I grew up, if I were a lookout in a fortified city built on a hill and during my watch I saw 
this huge army marched towards my city, it would be terrifying. I would look out, I'd see the king in front leading an army, charging on his war horse. But what if this king was on a donkey? So it's believed that kings of this time, they would ride on donkeys into cities to display signs of peace. 1 Kings 33 mentions Solomon riding a donkey on the day that he was recognized as the new king of Israel. Other instances of leaders riding donkeys are in the book of Judges and also in 2 Samuel 16. But if you think about it, Jesus came into the world via Mary traveling on a donkey to Bethlehem. Literally a quote from my mother. Thanks, Mum. I believe that uh, Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 is saying that the Messiah would not be coming to conquer, but would be coming in peace. But that doesn't mean that he's a tame God. He's a parent, a father. He's protective. Zechariah continues in verse 10, signifying that wars will cease and tribes will have peace between them. There's a sense of kingdom peace through Jesus coming to earth because weapons do not carry peace. The Jews will carry great spiritual peace and prosperity, but the Gentiles will also share in it. I don't know about you, but I feel like this prophecy would have been extremely controversial at the time, especially when years later Jesus is on earth and he challenges the religious leaders in the ways that he does. I feel like Zechariah is pointing out that the Messiah will come, not just for the Jews, but for everyone. Matthew 28 verse 18 says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is bold. Now, when I was researching the prisoners and Zechariah talking about waterless pits, not today, guys, uh, I found in Genesis 37 verse 24 about Joseph being thrown in a waterless pit. I think the waterless pit is a very picturesque way for God to describe this Babylonian captivity. Some of the Jews had been taken to a foreign land. They'd been forced to work for many years. So they'll understand this picture because they'll know the story of Joseph and his technicolor dream coat, obviously. No, but this would have helped them have some hope. And I think verses 12 and 13 is an opportunity to keep calm, carry on, and let God do the rest. Everything he's saying, it's signaling that he'll do it. Don't worry. Continue your work, do it well, and he'll come and be beside you. So in John 10, it talks about Jesus walking in a temple at the time of the Feast of the Dedication. Jesus was observing the supernatural victory that he'd given to the faithful Jews. God remembered them because they chose his word and his ways over their own lives and comforts. And you see examples of this throughout biblical history, of people choosing God over their own lives and comforts. God remembered Noah, Abraham, Rachel, the Israelite slaves, and Hannah, who showed this faith through their own lives, their work, their comforts. And God remembers you. Why? Because he gave Jesus for you. 
And there's absolutely nothing. There is no condition for that love. Jesus died for you so you may have freedom. As Christians, it is so easy to notice all the bad that we do and to pick out what's wrong with others, to feel guilty or have shame because something that, you know, it didn't represent holiness. To be reminded of who we were before knowing Christ. But that just eventually produces judgy people, which I've definitely partnered with. I don't know about you, I'm sure we've all judged others, if not vocally, um, especially in our minds, even about ourselves. How many times have we allowed thoughts about how we messed up in a situation, and so therefore you need to get some elaborate prayer or ministry time to get freedom and everything will be okay? But your freedom is first of all in Christ. He paid the price, nailed to a cross, and you don't think the devil knows exactly how to lie to us, to get people to believe that you're not really free based on what other people say, what society tells us, social media, advertisements, those memes that promote positive quotes, but actually they're just from random people and it's just creating more levels of anxiety. I call it toxic positivity. (laughs) How many times have you heard those little niggles we all hear on a daily basis? I can personally so easily hear those lies without even realizing it sometimes. You're not really free. You need prayer for this. You need ministry because this problem is too big. You're using the wrong shampoo. You'll be alone forever. Don't eat that food because you might partner with this spirit or that spirit. You'll get freedom if you get wasted. Nobody loves or appreciates you because of what you've done. Jesus died for us. For your freedom. The greatest love of all there ever was and is. Why is it so hard for us to truly knit that into our mindset? To have the mind of Christ. Look at what Zechariah says. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. I'll come back to that in a bit. Um, So there are approximately around 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah. And naturally Jesus fulfills all of them. But he is besotted by you. He loves you so much. He died for you so perfectly, so holy. So we could have that knowledge of our freedom. I just want to make sure that you don't think I'm saying you shouldn't have prayer or you shouldn't get ministry or stuff like that. But I just want you to understand the power in knowing who you are in Christ, first of all, so that when you do receive prayer or ministry, that you're built up in all these truths of who you are, that you have that foundation in Christ, not your own. You don't have to do life alone. So what does this Old Testament prophecy mean for us now? The rest of this section that we're looking at in Zechariah today, it shows us what we are to see in our lives now because the king has come. Look at verse 11 again. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, on a donkey, Jesus rode into Jerusalem in humility And only a matter of days later does he share the Last Supper with his disciples. 
The covenant that this is talking about has been established through the blood of God's Son. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we are no longer slaves to sin and we've been restored to freedom. God is restoring his image in you. When I was preparing this sermon, I was reminded of a situation in my childhood that I got prayer for when I was a teenager. But no one really knew about the situation. And when I got prayer, I felt so free, like brand new, as if I were reborn. My mind felt like it had so much space. There was no torment, basically. Now, the problem was I had no practical understanding of who I was in Christ because I still had or was working through a learned mindset that someone else had installed in me as a child. It was an abusive mindset, and it was like I was a slave to that. Even after receiving what I thought was freedom from that prayer time as a teenager, I I didn't know how loved I was, because my brain was so conditioned to believe that there were conditions And my perception of love was just completely screwed up. Now, I think this can happen so easily to all of us. We all have a past. We all have stories. Mine isn't any more horrific or any better than yours. Your story, your testimony, it's so powerful. The good stuff and the bad stuff. I knew Jesus died for me, but I didn't really understand why. My faith was based on spiritual experiences that God only talks when I feel it. And while there are good things within that, and prophetic words from people, and prayer times and ministry, knowing God and his word was really when things started to shift. Foundations were laid, and the truth would shine so brightly as my mindset started to deconstruct all the pillars that had been put up. How many times have you wanted prayer for freedom in a specific situation and just not being able to get it? What is your reaction? I know for me it was shame. I must have done something wrong to not be healed. I must not have worshipped God enough or read my Bible enough. I actually personally think this year I've seen a lot of people deconstruct from damaging or conditioned beliefs that you've grown up on that actually is just not the truth of who God says that you are. And we live in a celebrity culture here in the West. It can be so easy to do church life like that too, to follow someone who seems spiritual enough to be the answer for our insecurities. But we must test everything and have the knowledge of who we are in Christ, first of all. We've seen generations of people or cultures who've been so conditioned to believe in a certain set of rules and regulations and they end up living in fear and they use God like he's some kind of weapon set to destroy those that dare disagree with their views. Has your knowledge of who God is, has it been abused? Is it based on fear? Is it only seeking what he can do for you? how he can fight against this, that, and the next thing. My God is loving. Our God, he is so good. And it even tells us that Jesus sings over us. 
the prayers that I received, that freedom that I felt as a teenager, it, it only lasted a short period of time before the enemy would come around and out of nowhere make me believe I still needed prayer for specific things that I wanted freedom from so desperately. Of course, I still needed prayer. But what was I really looking for? A relationship with Christ or an instant quick fix without any foundation in solid ground, potentially leaving space for other stuff to put me right back into the mindset that I was before. And it wasn't until I was much older that I was able to talk about my experiences with someone I could finally trust, who was much wiser than me, that I realized, oh my gosh, I've had freedom this whole time. But that realization, that didn't come very quickly. It came because I built foundations of my life in Christ. It doesn't matter what age you are or where you're at. You can start today. I had major trust issues with authority figures. I still struggle with it. So how on earth was I supposed to know or understand how to receive love from God? It requires knowing him. Stitching and sowing scriptures about who he made me to be by knowing him, like him, trusting him. To be loving, gentle, protective, just, bold, merciful, a friend. This isn't a quick fix situation and it still requires a level of sowing that knowledge. So if you see someone constantly bringing themselves down, please have patience. I know it's hard, but keep speaking truth over them. I know the world would say to stay away from negative people or negative energies. But I think Jesus would give his time. Not because they're like a charity project, but because he already sees who they are, who they're supposed to be, how they can do it, how they can get there. Be patient like he is patient. And if you're struggling, ask him for strength. He is strong for us. Protecting yourself is not an excuse to leave someone alone in their time of need, even if they don't realize that they need it. Of course, if they're hurtful or toxic towards you, then that's a different story, but let's put ourselves in the mind of Christ when it comes to encouraging and lifting up others. I see all of this as love. If you were to do a Tom Daly and knit together an epic cardigan, it requires a level of repetition to knit and to sew but then it's like second nature, and you can get, uh, you can get to give that as a gift, um, that cardigan, or not just to others, but yourself or to a loving God. You can literally clothe yourself in the truth of who you are in Christ. I wasn't bound to the sin or the sin that others had bound me in because God had already set me free through the blood of Jesus Christ, my friend. I was just lied and lied to and I lied to myself so much that I couldn't see those truths singing over me. We can see similarities of this slavery mindset in the Israelite people and why this text is so important to us now. Because Zechariah, he shows us that he was trying to give them some hope amongst their torment. They had been slaves for years, generations even, 
So it makes sense that God would need to put someone in place to encourage them to work hard and to build them up and to give them hope. We're not perfect. I am not perfect. I struggle to love, to be kind, gentle, patient, confident. But I know now that no matter how I feel or what others say about me, I know the truths of who God is. And they live through me because of what Jesus did. And they live through all of us. Finding the time to knit and to sew them, it can be difficult. It can also be difficult to ask someone for prayer, to talk to someone when we're struggling. But being around people who know who they are in Christ is like what Zechariah was doing. You don't need some elaborate speech or, you know, to prophetically build people up. I'm not exactly sure if uh, Zechariah ever picked up a hammer in his life, but to summarize, we know that he brought this prophecy to help build the people who were building the temple where God could be among them. The Messiah was coming, and it's believed that Jesus came around 500 years after this book was written, so things were going to get better for these people, eventually, for the children, for their children. And I think this passage shows God as a God who is epically trying to encourage his people. He sees where they are, but he also sees where they're going to be. He's building up their lives as they build his temple.